You are listening to the teaching ministries of Southwest Church, located in the heart of Springboro, Ohio, at 150 Remick Boulevard, beside the Kaufman Family YMCA. Please visit our website at www.southwestchurch.org. Thank you for joining us for this week's message from Southwest Church Teaching Ministries. Hey, good morning, church. How are you doing today? We doing well? Hey, I'm glad to be here. Um, As Eric said, I'm with CDF Capital. I don't know if you know this, but uh, we are the ministry organization. We're a nonprofit ministry organization that goes and funds church construction all over the country. And I oversee our operations in the eastern United States, Ohio, Kentucky, up to Maine. And yours is a church that um, we partner with. We've been here from the original uh, building here to the expansion that just opened. And uh, we work with churches all over the place. And one of the things is, is that uh, nobody likes to pay their mortgage. Is that true? Like, I don't say, giddy, 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 I get I to pay the bank today. But the good thing, at least, is what we do. The one thing that should lighten that a little bit is that the uh, interest that goes to that, we funnel right back to church pro- projects all over the country. So by partnering with us, just even on this loan for your construction, we're, going to, we're able to go and have these opportunities to lend to churches all over the country. So thank you for your partnership. I've known about this church for a long time. I'm so thankful to be here today. But today we're wrapping up a series called Fusion, and it's this concept of what does it mean for us then to fuse together family life and what happens within the church. And I don't know about series like this. For some of us, we find this affirming, right? We look at what is said and we say, this is something that I have been doing in my familial life. Maybe you're at the point where you even have grandkids so you can see generationally that this type of a relationship between family and churches come together. But for some of us, for some of us, maybe it's been understated and challenging because maybe your family history has so much baggage that you've not really felt good about this idea because you feel that maybe you missed out within your parents or with your kids and, and you feel this tinge of guilt. But I want to encourage you today just to see the redemptive power of what Jesus can do through church and family to make all things new. And I love it because I've seen that personally in my life. If I can go back and trace my family tree and I go back to my great-grandfather who lived down in the holler, down in southern Kentucky and worked in a mine. Before the age of 28, he had three kids. And at the age of 28, while in a mine, because this was before harsh regulation made sure that it was truly safe, he was in a puddle and was electrocuted and died at 28, leaving his wife a widow and three kids And their life proceeded to be tough to the extent that my grandfather, the oldest of the three kids, ended up doing what everybody did down in southern Kentucky. And he worked in the mine. But as he worked in the mine, it was hard, arduous work. And in his young life, he developed an alcohol problem. So he would uh, treat his time in the mine and then come back and drink. And then when the mine closed and there was no opportunities for work, they immigrated to Cincinnati, Ohio, and ended up living right near the rail lines there where he worked. But his alcohol problem existed. So between his wife and six kids, he would come home, he would drink heavily, and he would beat them mercilessly. And it was a horrible situation. And that was the life into which my father was born into. 
But here's the interesting thing is that as much as this neighborhood near the rail line existed, it was right near this place called Cincinnati Bible Seminary, which is now Cincinnati Christian University. And there was a few professors there that started a church right within blocks of where my grandfather and his kids lived. And my grandmother still loved the Lord, was going to church, but he refused to let his kids go to church. And finally, the, the minister, a, a professor at Cincinnati Bible Seminary at the time, came and knocked on my grandfather's door and said, what's the problem? Your kids want to come to church. Your wife wants your kids to come to church. Why won't you let them? He goes, no, kids of mine are going to be Bible thumping, whatever. And the, the professor just asked him, asked my grandfather, just because you want to go to hell, does that mean your kids need to go to hell too? To which my grandfather thought, that's sound reasoning. So he sent his kids to church. Don't you wish we were all that bold today? Is that how you got here? Is that what Roger did when knocking on your door? But let me tell you something about this relationship. That was the actual seismic shift within our family relationship. And even though my father still struggled with the generational effects that happened like that, when I was raised, we were raised as a family who went to church consistently. I used to make the joke that I you know, started coming to church because of my drug problem, that I was drugged to church on Sunday morning, drugged to church on Sunday night, drugged to church on Wednesday night. Then one time I was like driving a guy home, I was telling him this story and I told him that little joke and he goes, I have a really bad drug problem. And I stopped telling that joke until right now, I guess. So I'm a hypocrite too. But it changed my life. The church changed my life. However much I would always wonder, like, why are we here all the time? Today as a person, I see that Jesus changed that life. So now I have a daughter and she's 11 years old. And as I raise this young lady, I'm always in the mindset of how am I raising her to become the woman of God that she's going to need to be in a changing time where all these rules are different. And I can tell you that the shift within my family tree, the, the shift from just despair to hope came because of Jesus. And maybe you've in, experienced that individually, or maybe that's part of your family lineage too. So maybe you've never thought about how important the generations that came before you and their faith in Jesus, how that transforms things. And if you're coming here for the first time to, uh, today and you're far from God, this is a church that testifies to that, that Jesus changes the entire trajectory of families. So it's important that we then, God's people, try to explore what that means. So for the previous weeks, you've been studying in this fusion series, a, a, a text from the book of Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy is one of the oldest pieces of literature that we have that's still accurate today. So it, it, it's ancient. And it was so important, however, that Jesus quoted the book of Deuteronomy more so than any other book. And if you know the setting of this book, because you've been studying it for the past few weeks here as a congregation, you know the setting of the book of Deuteronomy is this idea that as the people of God had, had been released and liberated, but then they sinned, they were, they were forced to dwell in the wilderness for 40 years. So we're talking about four decades of anticipation for God's people to finally get to enter the land that God had promised to them. So there's all this excitement surrounding it. And the very last thing that God told Moses to do is to repeat what I want from them so that when they get into the new land, they're going to remember who I am and what I expect of them. 
And a lot of this series has centered around that text from Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Shema. And I've listened to some of the sermons from this series with you and uh, um, going back. And Roger did such a great job of explaining the power of the Shema within the life of the people of God. Actually, some of my studies took me at Hebrew Union College. And it's interesting because even though there are scholars there that don't necessarily believe that the Bible is actually true anymore. So they teach the word, but they don't believe in the word. The one thing that comes around is this concept that nestles them within their life and lineage, which is from Deuteronomy chapter 6, 4, the Shema. In the Hebrew, it's Shema Yisrael Adonai Elchinu Adonai Ichad, which is great about Hebrew, by the way, because it's guttural. So if you've got a really good cold working, you can get that stuff right out. And as Roger said, that first word is you have to hear that the Lord is one. Ichad, this idea that God is who he is. But understand this, as the people were getting in to enter, it wasn't that God wanted his people just to know stuff. This wasn't a passive command. It was meant to be active. It was meant to reflect who he was. Deuteronomy chapter six, verse two said, the purpose of this is so that your children and their children after them may fear the Lord, your God, as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I gave you. So it's important not just to know them, but to live them so that they were active in their lives, the commands of the Lord. And where we're going to nestle down here this morning is Deuteronomy chapter 6 and a part of the text that you have yet to get to to understand the fullness of this. Verses 7 through 9 of Deuteronomy chapter 6 to see this other aspect that God wants his people to understand. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home. And when you walk along the road, and when you lie down, and when you get up, tie them as symbols on your hands, bind them on your foreheads, write them on the door frames of your houses and your gates. The them that comes over, over, over again here is the law of God. So understand that the Lord, through Moses, is telling his people, not just have this, but have that at the ready, at full accessibility. So when it comes down to it, you have done, and that first word there, impress. What does it mean to impress? It means, in English, it means to stamp on your mind. Impress. I played soccer in college. And, you know, as much as, you know, soccer wasn't that full concept sport, it was like the only sport at a small Christian college that I could play because my jump shot was broke and I couldn't play basketball. I played football in high school, which is really the idea that I played it as I just made sure, I was the guy that made sure the bench didn't fly away. Like I... That was my job, was to keep it settled. But it, so I started to play, you know, the, the, the soccer, which was supposed to be this lame sport. And then one time I'm, I'm, I'm playing and a, a guy like, you know, five yards from me just kicks it full force into my stomach. And for the next week, I had like Adidas in reverse just imprinted on my body, right? And I don't know if any of you have had that experience, if you've been hit by a ball or trajectory or something, or, or, or you, you just have that impression that's basically what we want to see with the word of God here is that it is, it becomes a part. The Jews took this incredibly literally to the point that they made sure that it was impressed on everything they do. 
So for instance, there are these things called talents, and talents are prayer shawls. Back in 2005, and my wife and I, we went to the Holy Land, and this is a picture from the Western Wall, sometimes known as the Wailing Wall, where the Jews would praise. And I actually bought one of these shawls, but I couldn't find it for us today. But when they go to pray, they take the shawls and they put it over them to have a head covering as they pray. And on these shawls, there's different things, but part of that is usually Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Shema, is woven in into the actual shawl. So it's literally covering them, the word of God is. There's also these things called Teflon. And this is interesting because if you heard this in Deuteronomy chapter six, verses seven to nine, it says you should wear them on your wrists and your foreheads. And, and here's an illustration to it, but understand is that when you go now to Israel and you see people fervently praying in these places, they have these little boxes. It's a black box that is like worn as a headband. And you can see on wrists that it's tied right there. And there are boxes there too. Inside the black boxes exist pieces of scroll that have Deuteronomy chapter six written on them. They are incredibly literal. And it says here in Deuteronomy 6, 7 through 9 that they put them on their door frames. And if you've ever known a Jewish family, one of the things that they have are mezuzah. And mezuzah are little strips of, of sometimes metal. This one is made out of uh, olive wood. And on the inside of this, and it's interesting, we were working with a church that actually was once a synagogue. And they had mezuzahs hanging all over. In the midst of all of this, inside that is a little scroll with Deuteronomy chapter six written on it. The Jews not only did this, they took it literally. But here's the thing about that, friends. It's very interesting is that we know this as much as there are religious aspects of faith that are good. Sometimes we take this and we say, okay, what's God asking us to do? He's asking us to wear little boxes or put things on our door frames or or, or wear them as shawls. There's all these different things that we do, but that is not the essence of what God is calling his people to do. It's not enough just to understand that there's this look of following his word. And the same thing that stands for us as believers in Jesus is what does it look like then in our our houses, among our families, as we try to, to make sure that Jesus is over that. You know, and I think it's more than a collection of precious moments dolls or, or, or used Chick-fil-A wrappers, right? That's not the essence of this. In, uh, in Psalm chapter 127, verse 1, we read that unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers do so in vain. So what I want to do for the rest of this time this morning is walk us through what it means to truly have biblical, biblical family, biblical family. And as we explore that, it always begins in the book of Genesis because that's the beginnings. And what does God do as he creates the entire earth? He creates humanity, but he starts with one. He starts with a man alone in the garden. And as many of us know, if you leave a man alone anywhere, there's trouble to be found. And I'm sure at that point, you know, God saw Adam trying to tie the particular tails of animals together and seeing how that worked out for them. Or maybe he was just trying to, he's like, it'd be fun if I burned stuff. Because if you get, you know, if there's bored and there's nothing on TV, I mean, I think the man's going to burn something. Where we land on this idea of Genesis chapter 2 verse 18, God's like, it's not good for man to be alone, amen. So what does he do beyond that then? He says, I'm going to make family. He creates woman and they become family. And this is a key concept that we look at all the time, but the 
beautiful thing about Eden, and the reason that that is the realization of perfection that we see before us, is that there was a harmonious existence between God and family. So understand this, is the way that family is intended. It does not mean then, and that a family exists outside of God, that God cannot bless them in things. But the, but the ideal of that then is not that we just have families, but that families are connected to God Almighty and that everything functions under the umbrella of him. It was an absolute perfection, but then perfection never lasted too long. Because at that point, there was fruit to be eaten, there were laws to be violated, and it's very interesting in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, is that then, as his man and wife, they heard God walking through the garden in the cool of the day, they hide from him. There was a break within that triangular relationship between God and family. It's broken. So we need to understand this, which is very key and essential, because sometimes we look at broken family and we want to assess blame. But friends, broken family is woven even into the scriptures at its very inception. And we even see how that carried on through Adam and Eve, right? Like it, it just didn't work out well. But still, the first introduction to biblical family here, it's through ancestry. It's through DNA. It's through the family that exists. Later in Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, we see how biblical family was key. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was righteous, blameless. He walked faithfully. And who ends up on the ark with Noah? His family. And that is the means by which God decides to do a, have a do-over and save all of humanity was through family. But here's the thing that we have to understand is that even though we look at family and there's a lot of preaching because I'm in a lot of churches all over the day, all over the, 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 the area that like to elevate the concept of like what biblical family is, understand that if you try to read the Bible and say, I will model my life after biblical family, you're going to fail because there are horrible examples. So I'm a preacher, I'm a minister, I'm a theologian. I'm telling you, do not try to have a biblical family through your bloodline because it will fail. Look at this, Adam and Eve, how did it work out? It's like, hey, we have a couple boys and you know, we'll just let them go, it'll be great. And then they literally end up killing each other. Some of you have kids, it's like, you know, it's like, oh, they're killing each other. No, they killed each other, right? Literally, and that's the proper use of literally right there. Then we see just how it comes down through is that you have Noah. It's like, okay, I'm going to save it through family. They all get put on the ark. And the first thing that Noah does when he gets on the ark is he's so distraught. He plants a vineyard so he can get drunk. Man, that's a, you talk about alcohol problem. That's a long-term alcohol problem. That's a lot of work to get your booze. And then at this point, you know, there's this, like, you read this account and their family breaks apart. Then God raises up Abraham. We know father Abraham had many sons, but at first he could have no sons because he was old. And so as his wife is old, the Bible says they were old. And God says, I'm going to bless you and make a family. But they, and they said, but we're old. That doesn't happen. And God says, no, trust me, I'm going to make it happen. And then they were like, you know what, what we, we really should do is get you a pretty young thing. And then you could start the family through her. So they don't even believe God. And then they have this split family with different mothers. And it just all evaporates. And some people like to come back and say that the birth of Abraham's son Ishmael was the beginning of the Islamic peoples and that that conflict exists today. Friends, all of these biblical families, you look at them, it doesn't work out. It didn't work out for Joseph and his brothers, right? Because of that family gone awry, where his brothers were so jealous of Joseph that they had him killed, eventually they end up in slavery in, in Egypt. I'm telling you, friends, don't hold up this idea of family through ancestry as something greater does not mean that we shouldn't focus on our families, but that is not the realization, the ideal of biblical family. 
Then we see that family exists through borders, through nations. This is what happens after the Exodus, right? Is that now that family, it was once Israel was the name of the patriarch of the family. Now they've grown so prosperous, they're a nation. Where do I have? In Exodus chapter 40, verse 38, the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day. The fire was in the cloud by night. But here's the thing, in the sight of the house of Israel, like we we understand that house has that connotation of family. So now the family was a nation. And if you think about it this way, we really, although we have Jesus in common, the other thing that we have in common is our nationality. Right? Like that's one of the reasons why if somebody comes to America from someplace else, it's sometimes hard for them to feel at home because we have this together. Earlier this year, we had the chance to visit some friends in Europe and we were over there. And it was funny because we would be over there and you hear English and you would hear that it wasn't a British version of English. It was like American English. And you would be like, hey, we have something together. It was funny. We were on the top of the Arc de Triomphe taking pictures and we could tell they were American. It was funny. They were Mormons from, from, from Salt Lake City. And we just started talking. And I was like, it's funny. It's that I have very little in common with Mormons from Salt Lake City. Very little at all. Like I drink caffeine, which is just the one starter within that. But it's like, because we were these same country people on top of a monument, it's like we were, we were connected. If you wonder why politics is so messed up today and why just me even saying the word politics right now, you're like, oh man, he's a guest speaker going in church about politics. Like, how do I get out of this? But even the idea that that makes us feel uncomfortable, I think is related to the idea that in some ways our nationality speaks to us as family and it's one big thing family infight. It's not like I can be a proud American. It's like, no, you have to be this kind of proud American or that kind and vote for certain people to make it happen, friends. Here's the thing. What God wanted to say is that his people had become a nation. Their family was through borders, but at the same time, it was failing. Because as you look through biblical history, the nation falls apart. Sure, it works good maybe in times of David, But then even David as a leader can't really lead the nation as the true man of God that he actually was. His son Solomon, who was the wisest person to ever live, still messed things up so that by the time his son took over, the nation has actually split in two and within generations, the nation crumbles. They were a family as a nation, but it didn't work out. So as we look at then where the Bible lands on ideal family, it is family not through bloodlines, not through borders, but through the church. And maybe you hear that verbiage as you're here week to week. And if you don't just hear it, I hope you feel it. But one of the reasons we come together every week is because we are family. And it's not just that we are family, you know, just in word. It's not just like a good corporate catchphrase, friend. The scriptures talk about the church being family. And we see that in the book of Acts through those early days of the church that everybody decided to say, look, let's, let's live, let's bring all our stuff together. If there's poor people, we help them out. If there are people in need, we love them. One of my favorite stories that gets overlooked because it's historical is the church in Ephesus. In the beginning of Exodus, we get this concept of, 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 of predestination. And a lot of people want to say, well, that's you know, a theological thought. But the big thing that happened is that that predestination was considered part of adoption. And in Ephesus, when people would go to a side of the hill, a pagan mountain, and they didn't want their children, they would just leave their babies on the mountain to die and get eaten by wild animals or starve to death. But do you know what the church did in Ephesus? They went to the mountain and any abandoned child 
crowd, they adopted them in. So when Paul is talking about in Ephesians chapter one about adoption and you've been preordained, it comes down to this idea is that the church was adopting people into their family. Now I'll tell you, I'm an ordained minister. I've studied theologically for decades. I've been a lot of places and I love my family, but friends, there is absolutely no family like the church of Christ. It differs from anything. It's an amazing thing. And I would challenge you, if you're outside the family of Christ, just even try to see how this family is. The thing that I love coming in, I don't know any of you all, right? Like a few of you I do. And then you give me your names and I'll forget that too because I'm really a horrible, horrible person. However, what I get to do when I come to a church is I get to see how people interact. I get to see how they come in the lobby. I get to see people hug each other and I know they're not related. But you develop these relationships with the people around you that become so massively important that it dominates your lives. So we have to ask, back to Deuteronomy chapter six, verses seven through nine, then how do we impress the word of God onto our family? How do we connect with God's family? We have to figure that out. And I think this is what the series has been, and you've had great conversations about this, but let me just tell you through my ministry experiences, you know, two decades ago, being a youth minister, being a college minister, and I have this collection of, of young people who are now adults with families over the years, and it's amazing to see how some of them have achieved, and some of them are just so far outside. They're, they are angry atheists. Like, I have both of that within these ministries. What's the difference Like, how does that happen? Here's the deal that I really believe is important, is that we need to integrate kids, young and old, into this idea that the family of God is one of the most important things. By the way, I was talking about my daughter, and I didn't drag them here today. Sometimes I make them come with me. But one of the reasons why I like sometimes to leave them there is that we have a church family down in urban Cincinnati, and they are incredibly close to us. Last night, my, we had a 40th birthday party for my wife, and it was great to see all of our pagan friends, you know, people who really would never come to church with us, integrating with people from our family of God. And when I introduce those people, how do you know this person? It's because we're, fam- we're family. We go to church together. Friends, it's not just about giving your kids to Eric or the youth team and letting them solve that, Right? To really impact generational thing, you need to own it yourself. Church family needs to be key to you. And, and let, me, let me clarify, not just the idea that we're together, but that we're vulnerable. Even as, uh, as somebody who's been in the church for a long time, I don't want people to help me out. I'll actually flee from help because I'm that proud sometimes. But sometimes it's the best thing for my child to see me being vulnerable to the family of God because she sees that there's something different. There's a vulnerability that we have around family that can exist as a church. As we impress things upon your kids, there's no way to do so without doing it yourself. Are you really part of the family of God and the church? So if I go back and look at my cycle, my cycle that was flawed, right? That started with a family that was far from God, that came closer to God. What does that really look like? How was that fixed? And I'll tell you the key to this whole thing, and we land on this at the bottom. In Deuteronomy chapter six, verse 13, it's very interesting. It tells us to fear the Lord, your God, and serve him only. 
I don't know how this stands up today because some of us have Jesus baggage, right? And it's like, no, I don't want my Jesus. I don't want to be afraid. I don't want to fear. I want to love. I want to be loved. But recognize sometimes we develop personal hangups on words. So when we see the Old Testament says repeatedly to fear God, we sometimes think that's a bad thing, right? We see that fearing God puts me in a place where it's not, no, it's not the God who loves me. It's the God I should be afraid of, right? He has this smite button and he's ready to call down the rain on me just when I do something wrong. But that's not the essence of biblical fear. Biblical fear can be incredibly healthy. I told you, uh, we live, we, or Eric introduced it, started a church downtown 12 years ago, lived in a little tiny condo for a long time. My daughter did not have a, a yard for the first eight, nine years of her life. But then we bought a big old house in the city. And when I say big, it's not like big in the footprint, like your all's footprint's huge, but we have a tall old house, like 12 foot ceilings. And it goes on, it's, it's 120 years old, beautiful old house. You walk in, it smells like it's been there for a hundred years. It's just, you go in and you're like, this is, this is classic, this is quality. But what's interesting is that 120 years ago, their building codes were not quite the same that they were today, right? Like there's a thing, I can't, I have a squirrel problem. I, we can talk about this because I have a, like an inerrant, like a hatred of squirrels right now. Because if they get in my attic, I can't get them out. Because my attic, I cannot get them my, uh, on my roof because the pitch is so steep. Like you need to be like a mountain climber to get it done, Right? Like the house was not designed very well. So we have really this one bedroom, my daughter's bedroom, and right next to it is the staircase, okay? And I brought a picture of the staircase that I took on my cell phone the other night. I don't know if you can see, but even at this picture, it's like the descent into Hades, right? Like, like it's, it's a very steep staircase. Like you, you can run up it fine, but you don't run down it because then you'll tumble down it. So they designed this thing, and I don't know if you can see right here, there's this white bookshelf that I put there. The reason I put the white bookshelf there is because the previous owners had nothing there. So her room, the door is right on the other side of the bookshelf. Like, can you imagine that, like some of you who are trying to trial-proof stuff, can you imagine my daughter waking up half asleep some night, forgetting that the bathroom's to the left and the right, and she takes that one step and just falls down the precipice? Like, I broke my kid. Or 120-year-old architecture broke my kid. So I am an awesome parent. I put a bookshelf there. So at least she'll have to tumble over the bookshelf before falling down the stairs. But here's the thing, is that we had a conversation when we moved in. And by the way, I'm, you know, I took her. I was like, look, see the stairs? Be careful of the stairs, right? Like you're going to get, you know, you're, you're going to forget. You're, you're not going to take it seriously. If you tumble down their stairs, you're going to hurt yourself very badly, Okay. What am I trying to do to my daughter? I am trying to make her afraid. And it's not because I'm a horrible parent. It's actually because I'm striving to be a good parent because I don't want to break my kid. And I understand that even though she's developing as a young lady, there's things called gravity that she needs to be aware of and it's negative impacts if you work against it. Okay? It's fear, friends. But it's fear that is uh, surrounded by love. And I would tell you is that's what the Lord God is asking of us. Friends, it's okay to be afraid of God. It doesn't make us lesser. It doesn't change the nature of the relationship. When we understand that as God has put our family together, he wants us and this family to keep him at the top to recognize this idea that we can fear him and be okay. I think of any explanation of this I've ever heard, one of the bests, was C.S. Lewis when he was writing his Chronicles of Narnia and introduced Aslan 
the lion as a representation of Jesus Christ. And they were talking about Aslan throughout the book. And one of the things they kind of asked, they're like, well, you know, but he's a lion, you know, but he's so sweet and he's loving. And, and the quote from the lion, the witch in the wardrobe about Aslan is he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king. He isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king. Friends, if we are going to help change the generations, we need to fear God in a healthy way and teach our kids how to do that. And how do we do that? We do that together in the family of God. Can I challenge you this? Will you, will you be vulnerable? Be vulnerable to this family. If you're at this point of struggle and you've been part of this church for a while and you don't know who to turn to, there are many, many people here who want to help you and show you the love of Jesus and transform everything that you, all these problems that you have. But what it takes us is to show that fear of God by trusting others. This is our family. Let's live like it. Let me tell you the one other aspect I love about the family is that we gather every week. It's like a big family reunion. And the one thing we do is we continually do this worship piece of communion. We have this moment when we all gather together and like most families do, we eat a meal, right? Like that's one of the reasons why Thanksgiving is my favorite holiday ever because all it is is family and food. I can get down with that. And every week when I meet with my church family, as you do here, we have this opportunity to commune. By the way, you, you've studied, you know, think about etymology, the development of, of words. Do you, do you realize commune, yin, comes out of that word community? It's all of us together. See, some of us get to this point to where we come and have communion every week, and it's like, okay, this is about me and Jesus. It's not about you and Jesus. It's about we and Jesus. This is something that we all get to do together. And you know why? Because as we come together for this meal, we understand the interconnectivity of my personal experience and how that's impacted by you. So we do this together. So as we remember Jesus now in this time, do me a favor, introspectively, ask yourself, am I really intertwining myself to part of this community so that's transformative for my family and who we need to be? We're family people. And the head of our family gave everything for us. He's worthy to be feared, but he's good. He's the king. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for your scriptures. I thank you for our opportunity to study them this morning. I thank you for the chance for us to see how you have worked through generations to bring us a full understanding of what it means to be family. I thank you for this local church family, for the children, for the women and men who come together to do some amazing things for your kingdom. But Father, for those of us who struggle with this relationship on the outside, I ask that you impress on us your word. Impress it on us, Father, for the betterment of our families and for the generations to come. And we know that that ultimate act of love that reflects this 
was Calvary, was the cross, was your son Jesus coming down from heaven to live life among creation and die a horrible death out of love for us. We praise you for that love that changed the course of eternity. We thank you for Jesus. And as we eat the bread and drink the cup, we remember that sacrifice. We praise you for him. Amen. Thank you for listening to Southwest Church Teaching Ministries. We are a community of people committed to following Jesus and making disciples. Please join us for one of our three weekly gatherings. Saturdays at 5.30 p.m., Sundays at 9.30 a.m. and 11.15 a.m.